0: Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at FemCoffeePod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today we have a special guest, Katherine Muller. Would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm Catherine Muller. I'm a professor of educational policy studies at the University of Wisconsin.
0: And we're here today because I think it was your publicist who reached out to us about your new book, The Gender Effect. We had a chance to read it, and it's very interesting. It's uh, about the Nike Foundation, and we'd like to talk to you about that book. Just to start off, do you want to give an overview or a summary of the book? Yeah, thanks. So for
2: more than a decade, companies like Goldman Sachs and Nike and Exxon have been investing their philanthropic and corporate social responsibility funds in programs for poor girls and women in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And they've been doing so to generate what they call a ripple effect from the scale of girls and women to the scale of their families, all the way to the nation and even the world. And the idea is that it reduces poverty, increases economic productivity, and improves child and maternal health, limits population growth, etc. And so this theory of social and economic change has been popularized by the Girl Effect campaign led by the Nike company and the Nike Foundation over the past decade. Um, And it's influenced programs for millions of girls and women around the world, including countries like Liberia, Bangladesh, Brazil, where I conducted my research. So in my book, I really look at this phenomenon and I essentially ask, how and why are companies investing in girls and women? What are the effects for both girls and women, um, their lives, their educations, their futures, as well as for these companies, many of which are in kind of the midst of or recovering from ongoing public relations controversies.
0: I thought that was very interesting. I don't think you use this word, but it's me, it seemed like you were describing a paradox that the Nike Foundation and others are saying that they're going to help these girls. But really, if you look at their frame, they're saying that the girls themselves are the people affected by the problem and then the solution to them, which doesn't quite make sense if you think about it.
1: Right. So we know um, over research over
0: many decades
1: that girls and women bear the disproportionate weight of poverty. You know, if there isn't water or firewood, they go to get it. If there's a reason why a family can't send a child to school, it's most likely a, a girl who's kept at home to do household labor, to take care of siblings. So we know that girls and women are bearing this disproportionate weight, and yet these solutions are also drawing on that same logic, right? So Sylvia Chant, who's at the London School of Economics, calls it really the feminization of obligation and responsibility. So whereby policy programs and solutions to deal with poverty become feminized
3: in and of themselves. Could you give maybe a specific example of how that might happen?
2: programs from institutions from the World Bank and the Nike Foundation to the Gates Foundation and the State Department have heralded this one statistic as a reflection of the kind of return that occurs when you invest in girls and women. And the statistic is that essentially girls and women spend 90% of their income on their children and their families whereas men only spend 30 to 40%. And in this way, those who circulate this statistic kind of imagine that girls and women will put significantly more into their families um, and their communities, which makes them a better investment. right? The return is gonna be higher. But what people who promote this statistic as a reflection of women's empowerment don't mention or perhaps don't understand is that if this statistic were actually true, then this purported social and economic return reflected by this statistic would actually be generated by gender disparity at the level of the household. So between a male and female partner as opposed to women's empowerment. Right, And we see this same logic in cash conditional transfer programs such as Bolsa Familia in Brazil, Oportunidades in Mexico, as Tara Cookson, the author of the new book, Unjust Condition, points out about the kind of women's work and the hidden costs of these types of development programs. But it's not just occurring at the level of the household within this logic. It's also imagined that girls and women are going to take more responsibility in their communities than men in terms of unpaid work, what is often called the kind of third shift in terms of the development of a nation. And so, for example, at the NGO that I studied, one of the executive directors said at a staff meeting that the organization needed to stop asking the girls and young women in the program to clean up the streets so they were doing all sorts of service programs, and that they actually first needed to focus on themselves and their own education before they were you know expected to be you know doing more for their family, more for their community, more for their nation, et cetera.
0: I just wanted to take a step back for a minute because in the book, you you detail your research methods and you talk about just ethnography and what that is and the pitfalls of that and how you were very conscious of where you fit into positions of power. Like, for example, when you were at the Clinton Global Initiative versus when you were, you know, observing these NGOs working with these girls. Do you want to talk about that at all?
1: Yeah. So, ethnography is based on participant observation, so whereby one is actually participating in the practices that one is observing and researching. And so when one does multi-sided ethnography, which is what I did, in order to understand a globalized policy or a globalized practice or discourse, um, one often ends up in different sites that are you know, unequally situated vis-a-vis one another. And so in the research design, in order to understand corporate investments in, in girls and women. I focused on the Nike Foundation and their institutional relationships with three different types of development institutions, so two NGOs in Rio de Janeiro, the Clinton Global Initiative in New York, and then also the World Bank in Washington, D.C., and so as a result of the kind of power structures that situate these institutions within the kind of global economy of development, um, I had different relationships with each of the institutions. So. You know, in the NGOs, for example, I was, you know, coming from the U.S. with a Fulbright. I was very much in a, in, in a position of expertise and authority vis-a-vis many of the NGO actors, including the educators, the young women. And so I was very conscious about the kind of gender and class nature of that, as well as questions around citizenship and language as well. And then, for example, when I was at the Clinton Global Initiative, I was very much well, I was a graduate student at a you know prestigious university and was able to access that space. You know, I was in relationship to CEOs and executive directors of powerful organizations. And so, you know, one is constantly moving between unequal relations of power. And so then the researcher, him or herself, is situated differently. And so it really takes, I think, quite a bit of thought as one moves in between these different spaces. And as one realizes that oftentimes I was the only one that was moving in these spaces in this phenomenon. So it wasn't as if the educators and the girls and women that I was speaking with and spending time with in Brazil were also moving in these spaces. So just thinking about how one can potentially be, oftentimes reproducing unequal relations of power, even as they're studying
0: it. A question that came to my mind before I even got to read the book, and that you answered in the book, was how you got this access to the Nike Foundation. And to me, it seemed like they were very nervous about giving you access. And you wrote that they reviewed the manuscript. Aside from what's in the book, have they given you any other reaction?
1: The process of, of getting access to the Nike Foundation, as you, as you mentioned, and I discussed in the book, uh, was a rather long process, and you know, I think the corporation, as a result of um, being positioned as the kind of global pariah of the anti-sweatshop movements in the in the late 1990s and even into the early 2000s, um, you know, is really quite anxious about academics and activists and critiques against it, and so um, doesn't really allow academics very often. There there haven't been a lot of academic projects that have had uh, direct access to the foundation or to the corporation. And so that process required for me quite a long time and then inevitably it required that we came to an an agreement that I would share my manuscripts with them prior to publication but that they wouldn't have the right to change them uh, given questions around academic freedom. And so, you know, I have shared my manuscripts over the years with them and it's always been a rather friendly exchange. But I think, you know, the book is a slightly different entity and so... You know, I've discussed the kind of feedback that they gave me to the book, Um, and, you know, I think it really shows the ways in which companies are concerned with controlling their image and controlling the messages that are put out about them. Yes, I think we need to be thinking about that quite carefully as academics, as activists, as people that are, you know, citizens that are concerned with uh, expanding corporate power
0: in our world. You discussed a concept in the book called reproductive hegemony. Can you talk about that? In my
1: historical chapter where I kind of think about how and why did girls and women end up becoming kind of a silver bullet to solving global development problems in the kind of beginning in the late 1990s and the early 2000s. And I trace back the history of population control during the 20th century and So what we know historically is that the development regime has attempted to control the reproductive lives and and futures of black and brown women in the United States, this has been well documented by scholars like Angela Davis, and then throughout the global south, places like Puerto Rico, Brazil, there are long histories of institutions attempting to control um, women's fertility for kind of neo malthusian reasons that if you decrease population, you're going to increase economic productivity. So part of what I show is that as that became not politically acceptable following the kind of debates within population and development arena in the 1970s due to feminist critiques, particularly coming from the global south and women of color in the US around, you know, the fact that this was really against women's fundamental rights, yet the same kind of logic persisted that you had to have decreased population in order to be able to to unleash economic growth. And so what a part of what I argue is that the girl effect and the kind of investment in girls and women um, regime really takes up that same logic that you will need to push back pregnancy in order to be able to unleash growth, economic potential. And so I argue that rather than being in the language of reproductive control or, you know, reproductive violence, for example, that it's actually what I would call reproductive hegemony. So that it's an attempt to control girls and women's fertility and reproduction, but through processes of consent. And so girls' education actually becomes the way in which um, girls and women consent to participate in a population, a population kind of logic. That attempts to have them push back the age of pregnancy. Now, whether that actually happens or not, right, is a whole different question, but that is actually attempting to do that, but through the logic of consent.
0: So my question for you would be, is this a both end situation? For example, um women in the global South need access to contraception, and the Nike Foundation, you know is using this need for their own ends.
1: Right. So I think they kind of dovetail into one another, right? So for decades, uh, girls and women have been demanding access to reproductive technologies, contraception, you know, we know that those are unevenly distributed around the world. And so, yes, at one time, there is a demand for that um, as a fundamental right. You know, as men at the same time, I think it also picks up on this other kind of male Malthusian development logic that pushing back pregnancy and reducing fertility is good for economic growth.
3: Could you describe the Malthusian concept for our listeners who might not be aware of the language?
1: Malthus was an economist who argued basically that Uh, increasing population, creates stagnation around economic growth. And so um, that idea has been picked up in various permutations over time. And I would say it's, you know, kind of a hegemonic logic in, in, in many ways where aspirations to population reduction and kind of control of fertility becomes a way to promote economic growth even
3: today. And in this context, when you say hegemonic, are you kind of saying the way
0: that power reproduces itself?
1: yeah so hegemonic in the
0: sense that it's a kind of a domini idea exactly it seems to me that what you're talking about in the book is kind of a conflict that say the nike foundation or these imf might see girls as a means to their own ends versus from a human rights perspective seeing them as an end into themselves just helping them because they're people who need help would you would you agree with that
1: yeah so i think within this kind of logic of the girl effect, girls and young women very much become a means to development, a means to what is called, you know, in in the language of the NYX Foundation is this ripple effect that investing in girls has, right? So the idea is that it decreases poverty, increases economic growth, you know, this whole kind of, you know, multi-indicator ripple effect that happens from the scale of the girl to her family, to her community, to her nation and the world. Um, And so as a result, girls become a means to that rather than their education being an end in and of itself. And so that's, I think, where we need to think about the consequences of that for the content of educational programs and policies, Um, because I think it looks different when we think about girls as a means to a whole set of development goals as opposed to girls and young women as an end in
0: them themselves. Where Karen and I are coming from this, I wanted to talk to you about this at the beginning, um, as kind of skeptical of, of capitalism and skeptical of neoliberalism. I think that this book really kind of clarified, for me at least, what neoliberalism is. And I know that wasn't the purpose of the book and what the critiques of it are. So I wanted to thank you for that. I know that that wasn't your goal and this was about something much more specific. But I think by seeing it in a specific context, it really helped me grasp that concept and I think something that was tricky for me to understand, but that I eventually did, was you describe the way that these these foundations kind of perpetuate and excuse the exploitation of girls and women through helping them. And that's a big concept to kind of wrap your head around
1: yeah so so, one of my arguments is that you know these are some of the most powerful companies in the world in each of their areas, right, and what we know about these companies is that, is that oftentimes their labor practices um are exacerbating vulnerability for girls and women even as they claim to be doing good to them and so I've found with my research that over time companies begin programs to invest in girls and women while they're recovering from public relations problems so Um, You can think about Nike sweatshop woes or legal claims against ExxonMobil and Chevron for environmental and human rights abuses, the series of class action lawsuits against Walmart for gender discrimination. These are all companies that have had significant controversy over their business practices, um, some of which involve female workers and certainly involve communities where women are living and working and, you know, raising families and trying to um, have meaningful lives. And so, you know, here I think we need to ask ourselves whether these corporations have taken up the cosmetics of gender equality without its substance, as well as their positioning girls and women to solve problems that oftentimes these companies have been part of creating.
0: Something I was thinking about was I understand that for, for legal and for tax purposes they're separate, but do you think that we can really separate the Nike Foundation from the Nike Corporation?
1: You know, I think it's an interesting question. I mean, I think, you know, from an anthropological perspective, you can kind of see the ways in which they are distinct entities that are related because obviously the money that the Nike Foundation has comes from the profit of the Nike Corporation. So in that respect, they are intimately entangled in one another. But I think we see with in philanthropy in general that oftentimes, in the language of Peter Buffett, who... Um, you know, is the co-chair of the of the Novo Foundation. He wrote a really uh, beautiful op-ed in the New York Times a couple of years ago, ago called the Charitable Industrial Complex. And he talks about the ways in which we're often solving problems with our right hand that we created with our left. And, you know, I think when we think about corporate philanthropy, that's often the case, right? So we have companies that, you know, are doing what they do, whether they're in the extractive industries or manufacturing or technology, right? And those have, negative externalities. Um, They have effects on the world that are not necessarily positive, that are exacerbating conditions of vulnerability for the poor, girls and women um, throughout the world. And so then their philanthropic endeavors, whether it's a family foundation, for example, like the Walton Foundation or the Gates Foundation, or whether it's actually a corporate foundation like Um, the Nike Foundation is, are often trying to do good at the same time that these other practices are, are happening alongside
3: them. So is there a way for these foundations to do more of a systematic or deep philanthropy that might actually end up offsetting some of the damage caused by the corporations that they're tied to? Is there a way for the current system to be restructured uh, or is the solution more changing the system?
1: You know, I would say the latter, right? So um, I think in the kind of international imaginary, the girl Effect and other, you know, types of programs have really um, had the effect of depoliticizing girls and women's demand for fair corporate labor practices, equitable education, and, and like a just global economy. Right? And so I think if companies really genuinely want to serve girls and women, then they're going to listen to girls and women's demands. And that is that these companies should first clean up their business practices here in the U.S. and around the world um, that put girls and women at risk. So that includes safe working conditions, paying equitable living wages, where regardless of whether you're, where you're located, allowing your workers in your contract factories to organize providing health insurance, fortifying public systems through actually paying proper taxes in the places where you operate around the world. And so I think if companies were to do these things first, these would be much more sustainable long-term solutions for ensuring girls and women's well-being than these kind of quick-fix short-term philanthropic programs that are trying to deal with the problems that global capitalism has created over time
0: you talked about the two different programs in in brazil one with afd and one with uh, gjo alliance for development and the gender justice organization i believe and you talked about the very intrusive data collection that was done on the girls who participated in the program they were asked like very intimate questions about sex and their their sex lives and their Families' economic situation and, and things like that, and I was just wondering. I know that this data was useful to the Nike Foundation, but did they they consider that in their cost of the program? Like, did they consider that in what they were getting back?
1: You know, part of you know global development today is this push for data and this push to find data that programs and policies um, can be proved, right? With mostly uh, quantitative data. And so we see monitoring and evaluation programs really being pushed across the development regime. This is not just the Nike Foundation or, you know, this particular area of investing in girls and women. And so the NGOs that I studied, and the the two you just mentioned are pseudonyms for the actual NGOs, they, in their relationship with the foundation as a grantee, um, had to develop a monitoring and evaluation system for proving that... Their program was actually effectively unleashing the girl effect, which was the intent of these grants. And so you're right; they had this kind of elaborate system that included questionnaires that were given to the young women at the beginning of the programs and the end of the programs. They had, you know, all sorts of other um, mechanisms, or telling case studies and sending stories. But so part of what I, I document in the in the research is that the questionnaire really asked. Pretty intimate questions as you mentioned around girls sexuality Um, and that was in order to you know to prove this idea that if you push back girls and women's pregnancy as well as marriage that you're going to be more likely to unleash economic growth and so part of proving the girl effect was proving that that logic and so the the programs really took on this idea that getting girls and women to delay pregnancy was success for the program and so the young women were asked how many pregnancies they've had. They were asked what types of sexual activity they were engaged in, how many children that they had had. So pretty intimate questions. And, you know, I think we need to be thinking about whether these types of questions would be asked, for example, in a high school here in the U.S. that was receiving a donation. And I think the answer really is no.
0: Uh, similar to my. Question about uh, reproductive hegemony was um, a discussion that you had about an investor in Silicon Valley talking about how he was getting involved in this because of climate change. And climate change kind of has a disproportionate impact on women. And so is this also kind of a both end situation?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I think this particular investor who said he was, you know, basically committed to the critters, right? So he was concerned about climate change because of its effects on animal life and the environment. And so obviously climate change has an effect in in that way on animals. And it also has a disproportionate effect on girls and women, no doubt, in terms of changes in, you know, the climate changes and what that does for all sorts of things, poverty, infrastructure. So, you know, I think the problem with that approach, right, is that it his approach was prioritizing animals more than it was prioritizing humans. So he wasn't so concerned about girls and women in and of themselves. And so if you then, you know, have investors that are concerned about fertility and decreasing fertility because that's going and controlling population because that's going to, impact animals, as opposed to thinking about girls and women, their kind of reproductive rights, as well as, you know, their families and communities, then what the problem becomes is that the programs you, you develop, right, are then focused on reducing fertility for another purpose, so, right? So again, girls become a means to another end, as opposed to thinking about Uh, girls and women and questions around reproductive choice and kind of fertility as something that girls and women should be in charge of in their own lives and futures.
0: Okay, so just the idea of mitigating climate change because of the impact it has on girls and women versus the impact that it has on animals or someone's finances, or bottom line.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the logic through which you develop programs and policies then affects the actual content of your programs and policies, right? And that has then effects on people's real lives. And so the ways in which we create arguments for things matter because they actually then often have material effects. So we need to be th- thinking about how to deal with climate change. Its effects on human life, its effects on the environment, etc. But we need to be really careful about not falling into what ends up being controlling narratives and controlling discourses.
0: My last two questions, one of them is, you were talking about this accelerator, which was this program that had, was it capital for businesses to invest in girls and women in Africa? Uh-huh, in India. In mm-hmm. India. What kinds of businesses were they?
2: Yeah, so the Girl Effect Accelerator was launched in the fall of 2014, and there were 10 startups that were invited to be included in the accelerator. And they were startups in countries on the African continent as well as the Indian subcontinent. And they ranged from everything from a for-profit school, um, a low-fee private school, for example, that was going to be targeting girls. in terms of their student, increasing their student population, there was another one that was creating briquettes um, that would be more clean, burning briquettes, for example. There was another that was a financial service provider that was going to, you know, target girls and women in terms of actually being the kind of operators of their telecommunications, financial services company, uh, one around kind of reproductive technologies in terms of pads for girls, low cost pads for girls,
0: for example. So there was a whole range
2: of different types of entrepreneurial
0: startups. That's interesting. I was just really curious about that, what kind of businesses they might be. And then I guess my final question, and I think I know the answer, but just because of the way that they advertise themselves, did the Nike Foundation ever actually pay for any girls to finish primary or secondary school? In terms of paying for an actual scholarship? Mm -hmm. Or actually um, schools that educate children and not just these extracurricular programs. Yeah, so...
2: So the programs that I looked at in Brazil were all non-governmental organizations that had educational programs that were outside of formal schooling. Um, but the Nike Foundation had a really, really wide portfolio over you know a decade, and they definitely did have partnerships uh, with formal schools. So, for example, their partnership through the Adolescent Girl Initiative with the World Bank in the country of Liberia was partnering with the Ministry of Education to you know support schools for example so direct formal schooling
3: so yes is there one kind of simple idea that you could give our listeners that you'd really like them to take away from this episode
1: yeah so i think you know this is the the era of time's up right we know that girls and women are being listened to, and the demands that girls and women have had for decades, not centuries, are, are hopefully being, are being listened to in a way um, that is new, and I think really time's up for companies. They have to be held responsible for practices that harm girls and women, whether that's sexual discrimination and violence in the workplace, or that's not paying girls and women living wages that enable them to support um, their families. And so, you know, I think my research over the past decade shows that these powerful companies are often claiming to empower girls and women around the world, even as they're exacerbating these these vulnerabilities through their businesses. So, you know, I think companies need to actually, you know, put their money where their mouth is and say, we're, we want to do good to girls and women. And so that means that we're going to really carefully look at all Aspects of our business before we try to do philanthropic work um, that really should come that should come last, and that girls and women need to be asked. Feminist organizations, um, women's rights organizations, who've been doing this work for a very long time, need to be at the forefront of shaping, you know, how these changes in the global economy happen. And so companies need to be partnering with them, and they need to be asking them to take on the leadership positions and really kind of make the decisions, you know, put power in the hands of feminist
0: organizations and women's rights organizations in order to shape the kind of future. I read an article that you wrote for the Huffington Post about transformative feminism. What is transformative feminism? That's an excellent question. So,
1: I mean, I think transformative feminism is feminism that takes seriously the ways in which race and gender and class substantively shape women's lives and our institutions and our global economy. And then in order to deal with girls and women's futures and the futures of our communities and our planet, we have to deal with the ways in which these forms of power, the ways in which difference operates across unequal relations of power, and that those have to be taken together in order to really to create any sort of substantive future, that we can't be just thinking about girls and women or just thinking around the axis of gender, that we really have to be taking seriously race and gender and sexuality and class in order to create a sort of transformative
0: future. If people want to learn more about these kinds of issues, is there any kind of quick recommended reading that you have besides your book, of course?
2: Yes, thanks so much. So there are really an exciting set of books that are coming out. There's one called The Forging the Ideal Educated Girl, The Production of Desirable Subjects in Muslim South Asia by Shanila Koja Muljil. And then Unjust Conditions, women's work and the Hitting Cost of Cash Transfer
0: Programs by Tara Cookson. Those sound interesting. Thank you so much for talking to us and for coming on our show. Where can people find you online?
1: I can be found at kmolar.org.
0: Great. And you can find me online at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I-Like-The-Number-Pie. And you can find me at uh, Karen, U-H-K-A-R-E-N. And you can
3: find the book uh, online. Or uh, where would you recommend people purchase the book
0: from?
1: Yeah, through the University of California Press or Indie Unbound.
0: Thank you so much and have a great day.
3: The Political Flavors Feminist Coffee Hour podcast theme song is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth. You can listen to her music at soundcloud.com slash Bridget-Ellsworth. And you can listen to her other songs there as well. And if you like what you hear, you can give her a like or even a follow.